parents, could I encourage you? Um, I, I know for those of you who have really little ones, it can be difficult to be in church on the Lord's Day with those really little ones. Uh, but let me encourage you to press on. We do have a speaker in the library where if you need to tend to your really, really little ones, you can go do that and still hear the sermon. There's a toddler center for those kids ages 1 through 4 if you'd like to make use of that. Uh, sometimes it just requires sitting here in the service and, and pressing on, you know, even though they're a little bit squirrely. And uh, it doesn't last forever. Uh, it is only for a season. I can finally look back and say that, um, having uh, children who are all now a little bit older, it doesn't last forever, but it's worth the effort uh, to to have our children in the worship service with us. I am more convinced of that than, than ever before, because we're beginning to see some of the fruits of it, um, having done it this way for five plus years. Uh, so praise the Lord for that. Let's go now to the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is the, sermon, uh, is the New Testament reading for today. And we will be looking only at verses 3 through 6 for the sermon. There we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. John is speaking to us. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, he says, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then, John says, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the of the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So far the reading of God's holy word, we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. So in the previous sermon, I presented you with a very brief overview of the premillennial the post-millennial, and the amillennial positions that are held by Christians today. Uh, the pressing question when we come to this text, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, is when will the things that are described in this text happen in relation to the second coming of Christ? So we have the second coming of Christ in view, His bodily return, and we are asking when will these things, the things described in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10, happen in relation to his return. Uh, now remember that the premillennialists believe that the millennium, which is Latin for 1,000 years, will come after Christ returns. Uh, now is the present evil age, then the bodily return of Christ, after that the earthly 1,000-year reign of Christ, which will then eventually give way to 
a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, this is the pre-millennial perspective on things, and this is the very popular view uh, today. And remember that the post-millennialists and the amillennialists have a different view. Uh, they agree with one another that the period of time represented by the number 1,000 here in Revelation 20 will be present before the bodily return of Christ. So first the millennium, and then after that the return of Christ, followed by the new heavens and the new earth. But the amillennialists and the postmillennialists basically disagree over two things. One, the starting point of this millennium, and two, the nature or character of it. I, did miss, I misspoke a bit last week. And I'd like to set it straight. Um, last week, I said that the postmillennialists believe that Satan will be bound in the future, or at least I implied uh, that strongly. Um, I implied that in their view, the binding of Satan would coincide with the start of their millennium. In fact, and someone brought this to my attention after the sermon last Sunday, and I appreciate it very much, there are some, and, and maybe many postmillennialists, who would agree with us, who are amillennialists, that Satan was bound at Christ's first coming. Um, but as far as I know, all postmillennialists believe in a millennium that is yet to come, and that is not here now, at least not in its uh, fullness. In other words, though some may admit that Satan was bound at Christ's first coming, the millennium, and by that I mean a golden and idyllic age marked by the worldwide spread of the gospel among nations, combined with the overwhelming fruitfulness of this evangelistic advance in the salvation of individuals and in the transformation of cultures and countries and world civilization as a whole. That is a quote from Johnson's Triumph of the Lamb, page 280. Uh, this, this millennium, in their opinion, this idyllic or golden age, according to their view, um, is, in their minds, yet in our future still, but prior to the second coming of Christ. Um, some might say that the millennium is present now, but it has to progress much more uh, beyond where it is now. It's not here in fullness. But however they put the, the thing and however they state it, the point is that um, the, the millennium, in their view, is in our future. Uh, this idyllic utopia is in our future, and it is prior to the bodily return of Christ, an age uh, not quite like the new heavens and new earth, you see, but one that is far better than what we have now. That is the post-millennial perspective. We amillennialists say, no, the millennium is here now. It began at Christ's first coming. Satan was bound then from deceiving the nations any longer. Christ is ruling and reigning now. And where is he ruling and reigning from? He is ruling and reigning in heaven uh, those who have died in Christ are also with Him, not yet in the body, the resurrection body, but in soul. They have been vindicated, and they too rule and reign with Him when? Not in the future, but now. And so it is obvious, after I state these things, that we who are amillennialists, who say that the millennium is here now, we must disagree rather significantly with the postmillennialists and with the premillennialists over the nature of or character of this millennium, because when we look around us, it is abundantly clear that we do not live in a utopia. We would all agree with this, right? When we look at the world around us, we, we see an evil age. We see darkness. We see sin and suffering and death. Uh, these are the characteristics of this present evil age. And so we acknowledge that, yes, this is how the world is in, the state that the world is in now, and yet we still say the millennium is here 
It is obvious, therefore, that we disagree with the premillennialists and the postmillennialists over the nature or character of this millennium. Both the pre- and postmillennialists view the millennium as producing a kind of utopia or golden age on earth. It will be, in their view, a state of existence that comes short of the new heavens and the new earth. It's not quite the eternal state. It's not quite the new heavens and the new earth, but it's far better than what we experience in this present evil age. But we who are amillennialists, when we read Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6, we do not see an earthly millennium. The amillennialist does not expect to see a radical transformation of the cultures and civilizations of this world. We expect the kingdom of God to advance in the world. Yes, that is true. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We expect the gospel to go forth to all nations. That also will be accomplished according to the word of Christ. And we do believe that God will save many from these nations. Indeed, the four living creatures and the 24 elders of Revelation 5 were right when they sang to Christ, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Indeed, Christ did ransom individuals from every tribe and language and people and nation by His shed blood. And indeed, these will in due time be brought to salvation by the proclamation of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, all of this is true. And also, I do believe that from time to time, the success of the gospel in a particular culture may have a positive impact upon that culture. But nowhere do the scriptures teach that the cultures and civilizations of this world will be radically transformed to the point that they are Christianized, being turned into a kind of utopia, a semi-curse-free, semi-suffering-free era within the context of the first heaven and earth that is prior to the consummation of the new creation with the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. I don't see that anywhere within the pages of the Holy Scripture. That, that, I, that, that, that idea that before the Lord returns, there is going to be a utopia on earth, you see, during this uh, present age and prior to the consummation. No, instead, this is what we see. Babylon will be Babylon until the Lord returns. She will always be as she is now. She will be that harlot. She will be a constant source of temptation and opposition to the people of God. Her character is not going to change. She was a harlot in the days of Rome, and she will be a harlot when the Lord returns. Her seductiveness will not decrease, but if anything, I believe it will increase to the time of the end. And the same can be said of the beast and the false prophet who symbolize world powers and their cultures. They will always assault the people of God. And when Christ returns, what will he do except slay them with the word of his mouth? And so while the post-millennialist and the amillennialist agree upon the placement of the 1,000-year period of time mentioned here in Revelation 20, it will come before the return of Christ, We disagree as to the start of it and also as to the nature or character of this millennium. Uh, The prefix aw means no or or not. It's a negation. So technically, aw millennialism means the belief in no millennium. Uh, The name could actually be very misleading then, right? Uh, For we do believe in a millennial 
reign of Christ, don't we? We believe that Christ is right now ruling and reigning. We believe actually in a millennium that it is here now. Uh, but we believe, uh, what, what we disagree with is the, the millennial concepts of the premillennialist and, and, and the, uh, the postmillennialists. Um, we, we take this 1,000 year period of time to be symbolic for a long and complete period of time. Um, and we believe it to be heavenly and spiritual. What we are disagreeing with is the idea that there will be an earthly utopia uh, prior or after uh, the return of Christ on earth. Friends, um, please know that I am painting with very, very broad brush strokes in these past two sermons. I'm providing you with uh, very brief and general overviews of, of each of these positions. And it is not my intention to misrepresent any of these positions or to fail to present the strongest case for each. I just I don't have the time to do it in, in, a, in a sermon. In fact, I've probably already taken too much time talking about these three positions here. I do want to preach Revelation chapter 20 at some point. I think it's important that we've done what we've done, but, but I don't want to misrepresent them either. I don't like that when people do it to me, you know, misrepresent my position, set up straw men and then knock it down. And I hope that you don't sense that I've been doing that. I'm simply trying to give you a broad overview of the various ways that Christians have interpreted Revelation chapter 20 so that we can do so um, properly. I do hope to convince you that the amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, is the right one. Um, I hope that I was successful last Sunday in my attempt to convince you that it is best to see the binding of Satan, as described in the first three verses of Revelation 20, as as having happened at Christ's first coming. When was Satan bound? Uh, We who are amillennialists say, he was bound at Christ's first coming. It was then that he was bound, not completely, but from deceiving the nations any longer specifically. Uh, This interpretation agrees with what has been said in the rest of the book of Revelation concerning God's restraint of the evil one in this present age. Uh, This interpretation agrees with what is said in the rest of the New Testament concerning the binding or casting out of the evil one at Christ's first coming. it's, It's interesting to me how those who are premillennialists in particular, when they hear us say that Satan is bound now, they go, are you kidding me? You think that Satan is bound now? How could that be? Look around you. Don't you see his activity everywhere? But just as easily, we can reply in this way. You think that Satan is not bound now? You think that he is not restrained? Are you kidding me? Do you see how the Lord does preserve things in this world? keeping them from going to, to, to complete chaos, keeping us from complete anarchy? Are you kidding me? Can you, can you see how the gospel has spread to the very ends of the earth, just as Christ has said that it would? Uh, it's a miraculous thing. I see evidence all around us of God's restraining power upon the evil one and upon the forces of evil. And indeed, that is our view. I hope that I was convincing last Sunday as I tried to show that it is best to take the first three verses of Revelation 20 and understand them as having been accomplished at Christ's first coming. It's not future to us. It is here now. But the amillennial position must also square with what is said in verses 4 through 6 of Revelation 20, if it is to be accepted. For these verses do provide us with yet another perspective on what will happen during the period of time signified by the number 1,000 here in this passage. So first of all, uh, John sees a vision of the binding of Satan. He will be released at the very end of that time. Uh, Notice that. First of all, he sees that, and then he sees uh, another 
a vision with a different perspective, but it's referring to the same period of time. And so the question is the same as before. When will the things described here now in Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 happen in relation to the second coming of Christ? Will they happen before or after it? Have they already happened now or are they yet in our future? And so let us simply read the text and then we will make two uh, basic observations about it that will help us along in this. In verse 4, John writes, Then I saw thrones. So are you picturing it? And you have this question in mind. When will all of this happen in relation to the second coming of Christ? Then I saw thrones, John said. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not yet wor- who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. As I was reading that text, I could feel your premillennialism oozing back out of your pores again. I could just feel it, you know. Because that is is the predominant uh, position today, and it is the one that the vast majority of us were raised with, to think that this will happen after the Lord returns. He will return, and then... These things will take place. We will sit on earthly thrones and reign with Jesus on earth in the future after Christ returns. That is the premillennial perspective. Um, All agree that this passage describes the rule and reign of Christ with His people. Clearly, that is the theme here. Christ is seen ruling and reigning along with His people. The vision is of thrones. It permeates the whole passage. Christ is described as reigning with His people and is seen uh, with Him, uh, who who are also ruling and reigning with Him. They are seated upon the thrones, and we are told uh, that they are martyrs. They are those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. So who are these? They are are martyrs. More than that, though, they are not just martyrs. Uh, They are also those who had been faithful to Christ to the very end. And so, indeed, this actually includes all Christians, all who have remained faithful to Christ until uh, death. Uh, We are told that these are the ones who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now, if you're a futurist who believes that the mark of the beast will only be present in the future, then I suppose that you would think that these are only Christians that uh, went through that period of time known as the Great Tribulation or something like that. But we have already learned that the mark of the beast is here now. It was present in the days of, of John himself, as he wrote, it is here today. It is to live for this world and not for Christ. It is to belong to this world and not to Christ. Whereas to belong to Christ means that you have the seal of God upon you. And so, really, there is no reason at all to limit this group to one particular kind or class of Christian. Indeed, all who were faithful to Christ until death, be it a natural death or the death of, of martyrdom, are seen here ruling and reigning with Christ. That is a beautiful vision to behold, isn't it? Now, the question is, when will this be? When will this happen? When will Christ and His people rule and reign, as described here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6? Will it be in the future, after the return of Christ, as the premillennialists say? 
Will it be in a future golden age, as the post-millennialists say, though some might believe that these things are true now in some senses, but will progress and culminate in a future and earthly millennium? Or do Christ and His people rule and reign now in heaven, as the amillennialists say? Two crucial observations about this text, I think, will help us get to the bottom of all of this. First of all, let us ask, where is this vision situated? Where is it situated? Uh, Does the vision describe something that will happen on earth or something that will happen in heaven? Where is the vision situated? I think we have grown accustomed uh, to the book of Revelation shifting in focus uh, from earth to heaven and back again. Have you noticed that that pattern, those shifts in focus in the book of Revelation? Sometimes the book describes how things will be on earth for the people of God. Sometimes the book describes how things are in heaven, even now, even now, while the people of God live upon the earth in this present evil age. Uh, We are on earth now, but where is Christ seated? Where have we seen Him seated in the book of Revelation? He is in heaven. Uh, We are on earth now, but where are those Christ followers who have died spiritually? Where are they? Uh, Their souls are in heaven, and the book of Revelation has time and again shifted its focus from earth to heaven and then back again. And we always have to ask ourselves, where are we? Where is this vision uh, situated? Uh, You remember, no doubt, when John saw, uh, what John saw when the fifth seal was opened way back in Revelation 6. I I really believe this is a crucial text, and I emphasized it many times uh, earlier in our study of the book of Revelation. I think it is a very crucial text Uh, for us to square with. It was in Revelation 6, 9 through 10, when Christ opened the fifth seal, John saw under the altar, do you remember this? He saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. What does he see a vision of then? Is this a heavenly altar that these souls are under? Yes, that, that is what it is. It is not an earthly scene, but a heavenly one. He sees the souls of those who had been slain And they are under this altar, and they are crying out for something. They are crying out for justice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the book of Revelation from that point has really been answering the question that the the martyrs had asked. How long, O Lord? What were they told to do, by the way? Wait a little while longer. Wait. Wait. But the rest of the book of Revelation really has been portraying uh, the the process whereby God does pour out His vengeance upon those who who have assaulted His bride. Um, And so we have this heavenly scene, souls under the heavenly altar. John sees them. It's a heavenly scene, a heavenly vision. Uh, But what are they crying out for? They're crying out for vengeance or, or justice on those who dwell where? On earth those persecutors of theirs who are still on earth. And so heaven and earth now are separate places, if you will. They are separate realms. And the book of Revelation is constantly shifting between uh, the one and the other. So where is the scene of Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, situated? It's such an important question if we're to choose between the premillennial and the postmillennial and the amillennial positions on this passage. The answer is that the vision is situated in heaven. This is a heavenly vision that John is seeing. It is a vision that is situated in heaven. The rain that is described here is heavenly and it is spiritual. It is not earthly and physical. Uh, To put it another way, John did not see believers in their resurrection bodies. 
sitting on physical thrones situated on planet Earth. Instead, he saw the souls of those who had died physically, who were now in the presence of Christ spiritually, who do rule and reign with him in heaven, even now. This scene here corresponds to the one in Revelation chapter 6 that I just read. In Revelation chapter 6, the souls of the martyrs are under the altar, signifying the fact that their blood had been shed as an act of worship before God. They are there as victims. Do you understand? Uh, Their persecutors have put them to death, and they are sacrificial victims there in Revelation chapter 6. But man, now if things have progressed here in the book of Revelation, what are they? He sees the souls of the martyrs again, those who have been faithful to Christ until the very end. But are they victims now? No, they are ruling and reigning with Christ. In fact, judgment has been vetted out on their behalf because Satan has been bound, as we have been told in the early portion of this chapter. The beginning of verse 4, we see, Then I saw thrones. That is what we read. Then I saw thrones. And I think it should be noted that the word throne appears 47 times in the book of Revelation. In almost every instance, the throne or the thrones are situated not on earth, but in heaven. I think this is very significant. Of the 47 times... Uh, that the word throne appears in the book of Revelation almost every time. I I think there are uh, maybe four exceptions, and I'll point them out in just a moment. But almost every time, the thrones are situated in heaven. It's a heavenly courtroom that is being, uh, heavenly court or, or courtroom that is being described in the book of Revelation. All that you have to do is go and read Revelation chapters 4 and 5 again to see this. Uh, For those chapters focus in upon the throne of God that is in heaven now. Not in the future, but now. And also the book of Revelation makes frequent mention of the 24 thrones upon which the 24 elders sit. And where are these thrones except in heaven and before the throne of God? I could only find four exceptions to the rule where a throne is said to be on earth in the book of Revelation. Uh, Three of these references to an earthly throne, refer not to the throne of God or to the throne of His people, but to the throne of Satan. Where is Satan's throne? It is on earth. Here is his domain. Here is where he does uh, do his work. He has been confined now to the earthly realm. Thank God he is bound and restrained here. But here is where his kingdom is presently. Uh, For example, to the church in Pergamum, Christ said, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. That is Revelation 2.13. Also in Revelation 13.2 and 16.10, there are two other references to the throne of Satan being upon earth. The fourth exception to the rule comes at the very end of the book of Revelation, with the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. For it will be then that God's throne is in the midst of us when heaven and earth become one. That is what will be described to us at the end of the book of Revelation. This distinction between heaven and earth is no more, but God dwells with his people in the new heavens and new earth in a most immediate way. It's just an incredible thought, really. Um, Friends, our, our heavenly and eternal existence is not going to be just spiritual and ethereal, but we look forward to a new heavens, a new earth, where the temple of God fills all, and we do dwell with Him and He with us in a most immediate way. Revelation 22.3, 
speaks of the new heavens and the new earth when it says, no longer will there be anything accursed in this new heavens and new earth. No sin anymore, no sickness nor death. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So when will the throne of God and the thrones of His people be found upon the earth? Is it in some future millennium, some, as I say pejoratively, half-baked millennium? Uh, No, it will be in the new heavens and the new earth uh, when God does dwell with us in that most immediate way, His throne being upon the new heavens and the new earth. And so I'm not claiming that this observation about the first four words of verse 4, then I saw thrones, approves the amillennial position, but it does set us out in in that direction. For the book of Revelation often speaks of thrones, and where are they? They are in heaven now. They are not earthly. And it does look forward to the day when the throne of God will be on earth, not in some uh, earthly millennium uh, as the pre- and the post-millennialists describe, but in the new heavens and in the new earth, that is, in the final state. It is likely, therefore, that John is here being provided with yet another perspective on what is going on in heaven even now in the heavenly throne room of God. Uh, Furthermore, notice that later in verse 4, John says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not yet worshipped, why do I keep saying yet here, and who who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The point here is that John saw the souls of believers, and he did not see believers in their resurrection bodies. The scene here in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, is heavenly, and it is not earthly. The rain that is described here is spiritual, and it is not physical. And the scene corresponds perfectly to the one that we encountered in Revelation 6, 9 through 10, where John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Revelation 6, 9 through 10. What I am saying is that what we are reading here in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, is the answer to this question that was uttered way back in Revelation chapter 6. We see it now. We see God and His people, Christ and His people, Uh, victorious, judgment having been given to them, judgment having been vetted out for them and on their behalf, which I think is a very good interpretation of this passage. Already then, we see that the amillennial position of the interpretation of this passage, I think it fits better than the post-millennial and and much, much better than the pre-millennial one, which understands this reign to be earthly and physical. Secondly, notice that it is the first death which coincides with the first resurrection that marks the beginning of the Christian's reign with Christ as described in this passage. Let me say that again. Uh, Notice that it is the first death which coincides with the first resurrection that marks the beginning of the Christian's reign with Christ as described in this passage. So what is the question we are asking? When will all of these things happen? When will this begin the things described to us here in Revelation 24 through 6. When will it begin? And what we must notice is that it is the first death which coincides with the first resurrection that marks the beginning of the Christian's reign with Christ as described in this passage. At the end of verse 4, we read that those who had died in Christ uh, 
came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Excuse me. Yeah, this is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. It's kind of difficult to read and confusing at first, I'll admit it. There's a lot going on here in these few verses. Uh, But when we settle down to consider the passage carefully, the passage reveals that there is a first death and there is also a second death. There is a first death and there is a second death. And also there is a first resurrection and a second resurrection. Uh, Two of these things will be experienced by all humans, unless you are Enoch, Elijah, or a Christian alive when Christ returns. One of these things will be experienced only by those who are in Christ. The other will be experienced only by those not in Christ. Let's consider these four things, the first and second death and the first and second resurrection, uh, one at a time. Uh, The first death we see is physical. The first death is physical. All who are human experience this, unless, again, you are Enoch or Elijah or a Christian alive when Christ returns. The first death is physical. All humans experience this. Uh, Those in Christ and those not in Christ experience a physical death. It is how we pass from this world to the one to come. Uh, The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. What is taught here in this passage is that when one who has faith in Christ dies physically, really, he lives. Uh, That is what is being explained here. That is what is being taught here. Uh, To die in Christ physically means that you come to life, that you are raised spiritually and in the presence of God. He, as the text says, comes to life and reigns with Christ for a thousand years. This is called, later in the text, the first resurrection. And blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. So the first death is physical death experienced by all. And the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection experienced by whom? Just the believer, not the non-believer. Because it's the believer who is blessed here, having experienced the first resurrection. It is the believer who is the one who will not be harmed by the second death. To die in Christ is really to live with Him. When the body dies, the soul of the Christian goes to be with the Lord. And what do we do once we are with the Lord? We do rule and reign with Him in the heavenly places, in the soul. Not in the body, but in the soul. The second death is the spiritual death that will be experienced only by those not in Christ at the judgment. And so there is a first death, which is physical, but there is also a second death. And this second death, the passage makes makes clear, uh, should not be feared by the one who is in Christ. That second death will not harm uh, the one who is in Christ, but it should be feared, even more so than physical death itself, by the one uh, not in, in Christ Um, It is at the judgment that those not in Christ, that is, those who are still in their sins, uh, will experience a second death. Uh, This is a spiritual death and not a physical one, uh, though indeed the body is involved here, having been raised from the grave. Look ahead to Revelation 20, verse 11. 
and following. I think it's here that we have an elaboration upon the second death that is here mentioned in verses 4 through 6 of Revelation 20. In verse 11, things are elaborated on. Then I saw a great white throne, John says, and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, we are told, the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 11 through 14. And so here is the sobering thought. Those not in Christ died not once, but twice. And the second death will be far more severe than the first, for it does lead to eternal destruction and eternal torment. There's one thing that remains in this passage then, and that is the second resurrection. Uh, Though not called by that name in this passage, it is strongly implied in it. And it is a physical resurrection that both the one in Christ and the one not in Christ will experience. Uh, Paul speaks of the bodily resurrection of the Christian in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following, where he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and so on and so forth. Here in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, it is the physical resurrection of the wicked that is in view when we read, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And so there, this second resurrection is is mentioned, but specifically with the wicked in view. Also, the passage we read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, um, implies and and points to and describes this second uh, resurrection. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Do you get it here? It's complex, uh, everything that is going on. But... There is a first death that is mentioned, and there is a first resurrection. There is a second death that is mentioned, and there is a second resurrection. And and when you consider the passage carefully, it becomes clear what each one of those things are pointing to. The first resurrection is clearly pointing to what we experience if we are in Christ when we die physically, when we die the first death. Our souls go to be with our God, and we do rule and reign with Him. The first death is obviously a reference to the physical death that all men do experience. Uh, the, the, first, the second death is clearly a reference to, to, to the judgment, to the spiritual death, the, the bodily yet spiritual death that those not in Christ will experience at the end of time. Revelation chapter 20 and 11 and following say so. This is the second death. The great white throne judgment is the second death, and it will be experienced only by those not written in the Lamb's book of life. The second resurrection is implied throughout this passage and in the one to come. It is referring to that bodily resurrection that all will experience on the last day when Christ returns. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will be caught up to be with Him in the air. Also on that day, death and Hades will give up the dead to be judged, those not in Christ, you see. And so it is a complex passage, I understand that, but a careful consideration of it um, makes it very, very 
clear and plain that this reign of Christ with His people begins not in the future, but it is present with us even now. Whenever a Christian dies the first death, he experiences at that time also the first resurrection, and he does rule and reign with Christ now. Where? On earth? No, in heaven, just as the passage describes. In his resurrection body? No, not yet, for that hasn't happened. The second resurrection is yet in our future. No, he rules and reigns with Christ in his soul, just as the passage describes. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and so on and so forth. This is a beautiful passage with wonderful promises for the people of God that should encourage us to persevere in Christ. Go back and read those early chapters of the book of Revelation, in particular the letters to the seven churches. This is what is being urged of them. Persevere, even to the point of death, and if you do, you'll reign with me. You'll be in my presence, Christ says again and again. And that is the thing that is portrayed here in Revelation uh, chapter 20. Notice also how the designation first is used in this section of the book of Revelation. I think this is a very important point, but one I will not spend very much time on at all. Uh, notice how the designation first, you, you notice first, second, first, second. Okay. Notice how the designation first is used in this section of the book of Revelation. It is used to refer to that which belongs to the current order of things. These are first things. This life, the death that we experience here prior to the second coming of Christ, this world, this is the first world, the first order of things. And that's how it is used later on in Revelation chapter 21 when John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And so in this passage, it is the things that are designated as first which belong to this world. The things described as second belong to the world to come. Do you see? That which is first belongs to this world. That which is second belongs to the world to come. So when do Christians experience the first resurrection and begin to reign with Christ, as this passage describes? Is it off in the future sometime? Is it after the return of Christ only? No, our answer is that it's when they die the first death. It is when they pass from this world. It is when their bodies are laid in the grave and their souls do raise to the Savior to rule and reign with Him even now. I want you to remember that this is what was promised to the Christians at Laodicea way back in Revelation 3.21. Christ said to them, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Consider that for just a moment. This, what we're seeing in Revelation 20, corresponds to this promise. There you are, living in Laodicea, Christian, and you're suffering persecution, conquer, overcome, and you will sit down with me on my throne. Where is that throne? Is it a future earthly throne? No, it is the one that Christ has taken his seat upon, even now with his Father in heaven. In other words, you'll always be with me and I will always be with you. To die for the Christian is to live. It's to come to life immediately. This is also what was promised to the Christians in Smyrna. To Christ said to them, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Compare that to the number thousand as I mentioned before. Be faithful unto death and I will give to you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. You have a similar promise being made here uh, to the church at Smyrna that corresponds to the passage we are now considering. And so what was promised to these churches at the beginning is now shown to them at the end. 
And what should they do then when considering all these things? They should persevere. They should live without fear in this world. They should overcome and conquer just as Christ has commanded them. For to die is to live, and to live in Christ is to live forevermore. That is the message that is portrayed to us here in Revelation chapter 20. It is for you now. It is not just pertaining to those who will happen to be alive in some so-called millennium. No, it is for you now. This passage is meant to encourage you to live and to conquer and to overcome and to persevere in the world now, for it shows us the true reality of things, that to die the physical death is to be with Christ and to rule and to reign with Him even, even now. By way of application, I would just say these three things. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ Jesus today, then you ought not to fear death, neither the first death nor the second one. You should not fear. I do hope that your faith is such, that your faith is strong, so that when you consider death, that is the first death, the physical one, and the second death, that is the great white throne judgment, I pray that your faith is so strong and that it is so sincere and that you are so sure of that which the Word of God has said to you that you do not tremble at the thought of it. Indeed, that should be all of our objectives and goals, right? To believe these things so strongly that we do not tremble even at the thought of death, physical or spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15.54 came to mind where Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth, resurrection, all of those things, and this mortal body must put on immortality, Um, excuse me, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Christ and the victory that He has brought to us and the fact that He has paid for our sins, He has kept the law on our behalf, He has risen from the grave and has ascended to the throne as a first fruit. There, all of our hope is found in Christ Jesus. And we need not fear death, neither the first nor the second. But if you are not in Christ, if you do not have faith in Him, if you are not trusting in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, if He is not Lord of your life, then I would urge you to do the exact opposite, and that is to tremble at the thought of death, both the first but especially the second. The Word of God reveals that all indeed will die. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 talks about this, that it is appointed for all to die. That first death, we must pass through it unless the Lord returns and takes us home. It is appointed that all will die, and then after that comes the judgment. And so if you are not in Christ, if you are not trusting in Him, then you are in your sin. Even now, you are sitting now in your sin, and you are an enemy of God. You are a child of wrath, the Scriptures say. That is your position before Him. And it would be wrong of me, therefore, to to bring any sort of comfort to you as you sit in that state. But what I must say to you is tremble at the thought of death. The first death should scare you, but especially the second. The thought of then standing before The God who made you, your creator, who is holy and awesome and righteous and pure. To stand before him and to be judged then for your sins and for your rebelliousness against him should cause you to tremble. And I pray that it would cause you to tremble so much so that you run not away from God but to him through Christ. 
for He has provided a Savior for you. You're to run to Christ and you're to make Him Lord. You're to run to Christ and you are to believe upon Him for the forgiveness of your sins. You're to run run to Christ and you're to cling to Him, abandoning all confidence in yourself. Do not tell me I will be in heaven someday because I am a good person. Do not say that to me or to anyone else, for there are none who are righteous. No, not one, but all are sinners and all are therefore guilty before God and deserving of His wrath. My prayer for you is that you would come to your senses and that you would see uh, your position before God and that you would tremble at the thought of dying the first death and and be terrified at the thought of, of experiencing the judgment of God and that you would run to Christ and cling to Him alone. Are you in Christ Jesus? That is That is my question for you. And really that is my third point of application. Are you in Christ Jesus? And if not, I pray that you would come to Him, believe in Him, Cling to Him always. Talk to me about that. If you're unsure about your eternal destiny, talk to me about that. Let's talk about that. Let's work that through together. Let's go to the Word of God together. And of course, I will urge you to have faith in Jesus, to be baptized in obedience to the command of Christ, and to walk faithfully with Him on to the very end, being freed from fear of death, having the peace of God laid upon you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. This passage, at least to me, does seem complex, multifaceted, interwoven. But it is clear, Lord, when we take the time to consider it carefully, it is clear. And we thank you for what it reveals. It does bring hope and comfort to us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that, that we need not fear death, neither the first nor the second, but we are to walk faithfully in this world on to the very end. Lord, whatever the future holds for us, whatever trials and tribulations, whatever persecution might come our way, Lord, may we be faithful. May we be faithful knowing that Christ has conquered for us and that his promises are sure and that we will indeed be with him for all eternity when we pass from this world. Strengthen our faith, Lord. For those not yet in Christ, I pray, Father, that you would have mercy upon them, that you would send your Holy Spirit to come alongside the word that has been proclaimed, to open their eyes, to unstop their ears, to transform their hearts so that they might run to you with faith. God, we thank you for your mercy and grace that you have provided a way for us to be right with you. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.